I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hey guys, what's up? Just want to let you know today is a special episode of The Watch. Andy is working on hacking robots, so he's just going to call in for 15 minutes, and then I'm going to be joined by Editor-in-Chief of the Ringer, Sean Fennessy. We're going to talk about Schoolboy Q. Our buddy John Caramonica from the New York Times calls in to talk a little bit about designer. And then Allison Herman from the Ringer is going to join me to talk a little bit about the night of. Excited for this episode. Check it out. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan and I am an editor at TheRinger.com and dialing in from the set of Hacking Robot, it's Andy Greenwald! I can't believe you gave me just a, a nice, true, supportive intro. I thought you were going to start messing with me. I'm not going to do that, man. I, was, I, know, I love I, that you're on the USA Network. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, man, you know, I know we came up together in the world of pay cable, but, you know, making the jump to basic cable, that... that not everyone can fly that high, you know? Not everyone can be Icarus. And, I'm, and I, I can't wait to announce uh, my, my show after Criminal Minds. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, if you went to network, that would be terrific. That would be great. Oh, man. Uh, we, 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 we went deep on Uncle Buck last week, so I feel like that's an opening. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, Andy, we are here to talk briefly. You're busy today, but we wanted to do a little bit of Mr. Robot prep uh, as mm-hmm. the new season starts on Wednesday. And if people are so inclined, which I really hope they are, they can watch you on Hacking Robot after the episode airs, correct? On USA. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. This, this is this show that we're doing and it's very crazy and it's going to be on live television. The second the the two episode event premiere ends, so like eleven thirty two p.m. I'm telling you eleven thirty two for just the real heads who don't want to watch the show but just want to watch the after show. How much um, are you worried about having a Ricky Bobby moment where you don't know what to do with your hands? I, I generally live my life that way, so that part won't be different. Um, I have a whole other list of anxieties. If you'd like to do a special podcast about those, but uh, have you had any no, interesting gonna... anxiety dreams you want to talk about? I could definitely, you know, I'll put them mostly on my live journal, but I'll send people to them. No, it's going to be fun because it's uh, it's it's me. It's uh, Sam Esmail, the creator of the show. It's Christian Slater, Rami Malek, um, Portia Doubleday, Carly Chaikin, potentially special guests, potentially someone wearing an F Society mask. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Pump um, up the volumes, Christian Slater. Dude, do you know what this means to me? Do you? I remember when Cuffs with a K came out and I was like, <laughs> I was like, he is our Nicholson. Gleaming like, the cubes, Christian Slater. To be fair. Which I would like to be to Christian Slater. You people don't realize like what a big deal this kid was when he was a kid. Like when we were kids, when when Heather's came out. And oh yeah, the volume. there was like a solid ten minutes there where it was like this is the new Nicholson. And I have to say, because I met him last year when we were doing Mr. Robot stuff in the first season, the nicest guy in the world now and so excited about being a part of the show. And uh, yeah, I think this is going to be fun. But what we wanted to talk about specifically was a kind of funny surprise that happened last night. I wasn't. I wasn't aware of it. Were you aware that this was coming? No. Why would I be aware of it? You're on the after show. <laughs> yeah, but you live. In, but you live in Hollywood, so maybe you pick up on the currents. I was you know just what I mean? w- like watching my girlfriend, my wife watch girlfriend experience. <laughs> you were watching your girlfriend. What was your wife watching? <laughs> she was time. watching the boyfriend experience. No, I was <laughs> exactly. watching. I was like kind of in and out, but I mean, I watched like seven episodes of Girlfriend Experience last night, so I was not. Damn. I was not in the zone where I was picking up on. On viral stunts. Yeah, so it was kind of exciting because the the, the the premiere on Wednesday is two episodes, the first two episodes of season two, and I, I, they are excellent, and I would be saying that regardless of the fact, <laughs> even if I wasn't standing on a Midtown set of an after show right now. But last night, if you timed your 
social media engagement right, you would have seen that they put first half of the premiere up on various platforms, right? They've dropped it on YouTube, on Twitter, on Snapchat. Um, and that was pretty interesting. So it's I the think first half were, or it's the whole episode? Well, the, fir- the premiere is technically two episodes. Ah, so what they put up was the first episode. Um, Wednesday, they will air the second episode and also <clears throat> the after show. But first episode was very good, but I don't think you had a chance to watch it yet, and we'd rather talk about it when we can talk about all of it later this week when we do a re-up. Yeah. But this was kind of new terrain for TV because we've spent a bunch of time recently talking about the phenomenon of the surprise album drop, and all of a sudden TV's like, no, we want to do that too. How do you feel about this? I think it sucks. <laughs> I don't think it's working for music. I mean, I guess it's develop. It's building up buzz, and you get like these these moments where you own a news cycle, or you own a twenty four hours, or you own maybe even a week. If it's, I don't think it's working. I don't, and I don't think that television should do that. I, it's not that I, it it's cruel necessarily to the people who write about television, which it is. Uh, but it, yes. it is, uh, it, it, I don't know. It just doesn't feel right. Am I old? Is that, is that wrong? Well, I think that you're not wrong because I think that our opinions about this phenomenon are coming from what happens with music. And I think that we are both generally against it because it does seem like you, you, we win the battle, but you lose the war because you win the, the, the conversation cycle for a day, but then you drop off of the conversa- conversation cycle for the rest of the week, month, year. But I will say now, especially now that I don't have to write about these things, because this that would have totally screwed me. Let me be clear about that. Yeah. Because if I was going to be writing, so what, I, what? That was like eight p.m. last night. Yes, yeah. it was like eight p.m. on a Sunday. And if this was still Grantland days, I would probably be writing a column about the return of Mr. Robot, and I would be writing that column. The column would be due Tuesday afternoon, so I would definitely be writing it beginning Tuesday morning. <laughs> yeah, I was just gonna say that. I was like, so, I thought you were gonna be like, I, I would be polishing off my second draft. It's like get GTFO, no. dog. <laughs> but also, I would have been writing probably like a like a recap or something of Night of. So I would have had another piece to be doing today. Yeah, because it's totally blown everything up. So, but you know, do not weep for the TV critics. They do not weep for you. But I think. Um, um, I think that was that was that Shakespeare or John Donne, <laughs> but the reason I'm going to play the devil's advocate here, and I say this this is the first time this has happened to my knowledge. And to, to be clear, though I'm hosting the after show, I had no knowledge of that happening last night um, ahead of time. TV is a little bit more uniquely suited to actually, I think, gain from this kind of stunt because there's always a second episode. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's not like things are going to vanish. It's just sort of, you know, hyping the people who are already hyped. And I think the key thing about this leak was that it was only for a limited time on these platforms. And the truth is the people who are peeping, like, the Who is Mr. Robot account and learned about it are the people who are most excited to watch it early. And to be honest, I don't think those are the people with Nielsen boxes or who are, you know, I don't think those are necessarily the people that count. So I don't think they cannibalize their own ratings by doing it. Okay. That being said... Uh, I can just, I can safely tell you that, that, that episode, that the, the episode doesn't disappear just because they've taken the tweet down or, or anything <laughs> what, like what you, that. What are you suggesting, Elliot Alderson? I don't understand. And I do think that as we've been talking about a lot, when we've talked about this idea of the belt for the best TV show of the moment, mm-hmm. part of what contributes to that is the ability to talk about it at the same time and i actually yeah. do think now in retrospect for as uh i'm sure as as unpleasant as it would have been or as it was to write about game of thrones the night of uh it's ep- of, of its airing 
the fact that there wasn't a lot of like, boy, wait till you see episode six of this Game of Thrones season or episode two or episode nine, uh, that 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 helped and that there was a degree to which everybody was around the campfire at the same time with the season. Now, Game of Thrones is maybe unique in television right now, with the exception of Walking Dead, in terms of you really got to see what's going to happen when it happens, because otherwise you're going to hear about it, whether you like it or not. I think that's a good point. I think the other thing is that you don't get many turns at the plate in, I don't want to say this business, but I mean in the television landscape. And what I mean is coming off a season like season one of Mr. Robot, you don't necessarily, you're not guaranteed to have a, you know, five times, six times, seven times, even two or three more times to have a large portion of the country so hyped and psyched to find out what happens next and to sort of put give some people a chance to know what happens next and then sort of dribble it out over three days instead of knowing that everyone who cares, everyone who caught the show when it was on last summer, everyone who binged on Amazon, everyone who is just super psyched to find out where they are, not having them all united and together on Wednesday night, that seems like a missed opportunity potentially. And I'm not just saying that because I want them to be watching at 11.32 p.m. on the USA Network. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. So, I mean, just in but, terms of oh god, oh, you go ahead. no, you go ahead. No, I, you go I, ahead, man. You're you, the guest. You, you, you're the guest. You're calling in from a cold hallway somewhere. I'm, I am. I'm in this. I'm in this empty uh, dressing room, I guess. And in the bathroom, there's like a hair sink, like where you can put your head in it, <laughs> so someone can like massage your follicles. But I don't think anyone is. I don't think any follicles have been massaged in there that, in like a good half decade. The hair sink was definitely like on the <laughs> on the vision board for seven. It was like David Fincher was like. Let me just bounce something off you guys. Hair sink. <laughs> and Morgan imagine? Freeman was like, no. If he had, you, what, what if there had been like a Slack chat for like yes. the principals involved in seven? <laughs> and you just like the Slack pings at like two in the morning and Fincher's like, hair sink? Dot, 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 question mark. And, and then Morgan it's Freeman like, nobody sends, responds. It's like Brad Pitt has left the room. <laughs> no, and then it's like Morgan Freeman sends the like chin scratching emoji. Um <laughs> Kevin Spacey just hits panda emoji 15 times. (laughs) And he's never stopped. And it turns out later he was just sitting on his phone, but everyone thought he was a visionary. Um, I I was going to say that, you know, the Horace and Pete, the Louis C.K. show was kind of a surprise drop. And in that sense, and you know, it's just very, very hard to surprise drop anything because of advertising and scheduling. And because that was separate from advertising, it was able to do it. But I think that suited him because everyone was like, what is this? And then what he was, the surprise drop wasn't just dropping one thing and one thing alone. It was like I was saying before, he was basically saying, okay, now this is going to be a thing for a number of weeks. And he never quite made it clear how many weeks. So it built and built and built in a more traditional way. But in retrospect, way, but don't you think that Horace and Pete could have probably reached more people if it had a run-up? And if people felt like, oh my gosh, like Louis C.K. is branching out into more or less like American theater, and I, he got to check this out, Alan Alda's greatest ever performance, You got everybody has to watch this. I'm not saying I, if it, it didn't necessarily need to be on a traditional platform, but sometimes people need to just be made aware of these things. I, I see what you mean. I don't think you're wrong, but I also think and this maybe is a cynical take on it. But I think that the show probably profited more from the story about how and why he did it than anything else, because he got so much press from the fact that he did it as a surprise, as an email subscription, as something that potentially put him into like Kanye levels of debt, which, as it turns out, wasn't really true. But those stories kept the show in the news as much as like Laurie Metcalf's stunning one take finale in episode three. You know what I mean? So in a way, I, you know, 
Louis C.K. definitely presents himself as like, I don't know, I'm just kind of making it up as I go along. But he knows how the kind of press coverage he's going to get, and he's very smart about using it. Yeah, and I suppose that this ultimately is, it's it, it's not, it serves Mr. Robot as a show because this is a show about the way that information is vulnerable and what in, the power of information. And in a lot of ways, even though it's kind of obvious, releasing it in this fashion if, if only temporarily, is pretty smart. Can I suggest So when you why? see Sam Esmail, Sam, <laughs> nice job, Sam. I, I will. Sam Esmail listen, he listens to the watch, so he'll hear it before I tell him. But one thing uh, uh, that I would also add about it is that I think, I know, again, I don't actually know, but I'm beginning to suspect why they did it last night and why they did it at like 8.59 p.m. I think it's because someone at the USA Network heard what we were saying about the TV belt and that we were saying it could go to the night of. And so they <laughs> dropped the show right before the night of premiered. I mean, which was a little, that's a little questionable. I'm going to talk to Al, uh, to, uh, we're going to be talking a little bit more about the night of later in the episode, this episode, but I don't think that, I think the night of deserves it. Before, before I go, because I got to get back to um, put it, you know, uh, hair sink. <laughs> I, I, I got to go back to hoodie fittings and the hair sink. Yeah. But, one thing, and please talk to Allison about this, but it's been interesting to watch reactions to the night of as people watched it. And by the way, that was available before it actually premiered too, although that wasn't really like a surprise. Um, is it, does it, what, what re, you know, I'm not going to lead the witness. What reaction does it engender in you when people's response to the show are, oh, what a dummy. He made so many dumb choices, so I couldn't watch it. Um, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't think Twitter is a great place for people to. <laughs> Do you just stop there? Uh, I would say that that was a, a vocal, a vocal minority of the responses that I saw to the show. Lots of which were like, holy shit, you guys did not undersell this. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people are like, this guy is really screwing up, but there's a lot of beats to this story, man. But I agree. And it's also like, there are a lot of, a lot of keyboard warriors who are like, I would have been much savvier about wiping my prints from the <laughs> knife that was just used to butcher a woman. Yeah. That's def like, definitely, definitely something you won't want to mute. Yeah, exactly. Or if you're just like out in the city where you've lived in your whole life and someone notices you standing at a gas station, my first thought is definitely like, well, I better brown bag that guy because I don't want him to know what I was doing tonight. <laughs> like, it's the, the thing that Riz Ahmed does so well is that he seems so totally petrified and confused while also seeming like someone who is in other circumstances a competent and relatively together kid. But yeah. a kid. Yeah, that's yeah. What matters. Absolutely. Um, so. All right, man. We'll go back to the hair sink. Say hi to David Fincher for me. We are, I mean, everybody that I know, with, with a few exceptions, are so excited for you. Do, do, do you want to name those people right now? Tate's like, fuck Andy. Tate, Tate basically said. Tate's like, Ben Simmons can't shoot and Andy can't host. This is what I would point. Like, Tate already said, fuck Andy, when he started talking ill of the god Ben Simmons. Yeah. So, you know what? I'll see Tate at the Ben Simmons statue unveiling in 20 years. <laughs> and Tate will still not be as old as we are. I can't wait. You and I will be there like we just survived like Dunkirk. We'll be like, you, you, you didn't believe, Tate. Why would we be that old? We'll only be 60. But Chris, still. People, first of all, how dare you? Second of all, people will come up to us and be like, why are you cosplaying John Mulaney and Nick Kroll's Oh Hello show? <laughs> <laughs> That's what people will say to us when they see us in also, public in 20 years. Why are you, why are you in the Staples Center when Ben Simmons leaves to go to the Clippers in five oh, years? God, uh, you know, I, I, I knew calling into my own podcast was a terrible idea. Okay. Uh, have fun at the hair sink. We'll talk to you in a couple of days. We'll be back Thursday for a re-up where we talk about the actual episodes. Great job, Bransky, in advance. Bye.
Hey guys, buying tickets online for sports and concerts has been a confusing process for a really long time. It's always been hard to find the best deal for that game or show you want to go to, and none of those older ticket sites want that to change. But SeatGeek is different. They've come along and created an amazing app and website that makes it easier than ever for fans to buy and sell tickets. I have just been looking at SeatGeek recently, both on my phone and on uh, on their wonderful website, and I just cannot believe how many concerts are coming this summer. I need to just get laced up with some Adele tickets. She's coming in August. Beyonce's playing Dodger Stadium. The Cowboys are playing the Rams in August. Tate, golf season is here. My man Sting is playing the Hollywood Bowl in July. It's all happening, and SeatGeek can help you get to any of those any of those events and more. Um, SeatGeek is always the first place I go when I'm looking for tickets to a game or a concert. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and I just used it the other day, like I said, to look for those Adele seats. Um, with SeatGeek, you'll never have to waste time checking prices on other ticket sites, too. That's the best part about it. SeatGeek does that for you by pulling all the tickets available on other sites into one place, so you can uh, save time and you never miss a deal. It's basically this incredible aggregation service where you can see what everybody else is offering and make sure you get the best deal. SeatGeek wants to help you get the most bang for your buck. That's why every ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on value. You'll immediately see any underpriced seats and be able to find the best deals that fit your budget. And best of all, listeners of The Watch uh, get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. How cool is that? To get your $20 rebate off tickets, download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, enter promo code WATCH, W-A-T-C-H, SeatGeek will then send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code WATCH today. All right, now I'm joined by Sean Fennessy, editor-in-chief of TheRinger.com, a website, and also a huge fan of Schoolboy Q, who came out with a record last week, Blank Face. Big things. Big things. Very happy to be here, Chris. Damn, this is a good record. I keep thinking, like, this is it. Now I'm like, I've, I've got the collection of albums that I will be listening to for the rest of the year, and then... This is this is great. This is just a an awesome album. What do you like about it? I'm curious. You know what it is? Is I was I was talking with Michael Peters about this a little bit. I'm actually not an Eminem fan, but mm-hmm. this kind of it kind of reminds me a little of Eminem in places in terms of the darkness and some of the textures of the production. And I really, really, really like that this feels like it's it used to be that, you know, mixtapes were used as like sketchbooks and the albums where you're painting. And this actually feels like that. I feel like Schoolboy's been building up towards this complete of a statement. statement. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, it, you know, I know that we're going to talk a little bit about YG, but this feels like the wide range of Southern California rap on display from like Cypress Hill to Predator, America's Most Wanted Era, Ice Cube has some, some references in there. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just, and also just the collection of guests with actually weirdly the exception of Kanye, I think I'm really correct. You know, it's like wild that they put out the Kendrick remix of that, of that, of that song. And it's just like now that Kanye verse is just not good. It feels meaningless. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. So we should give a little context. Sure. Schoolboy is a member of TDE. He is sort of the, the Robin to Kendrick Lamar's Batman, I guess you could say no disrespect to uh J rock or Absol. And this is his fourth record, his second major label record. It's mostly produced by Digiphonics, which is, you know, the in-house TDE producers, which is Tay Beast, Soundwave, Will Be. Um, and it's it's an interesting, beautiful, dark drug cloud of a record. Yeah, which it's most really, of his records really are like that. blunt ashes in, a, in an ashtray and like yeah. kind of 
gross windows, you know, that have been smoked on too much and can't tell if it's 5 p.m. or 5 a.m. Yeah, kind of feeling. Cypress Hill is a really interesting reference point that you made because I think that, that that drugginess is very resonant. But on the other hand, Schoolboy Q seems very sad and angry. Mm-hmm. And I always felt like Cypress Hill, there was a kind of like a joyousness to their blunted out, fuck the cops point of view. Yeah. This is, this is a much more been sipping on lean falling asleep in my couch watching belly for the hundredth time kind of look you know and some of it is uh mournful and some of it is reflective and some of it is just like fuck everybody yeah it feels like a when people talk about throwbacks often it means like oh it's a throwback sonically or you know like uh joey badass does does this stuff or whatever but with this record it's more of a throwback to a feeling of almost a pre-airnet how you would entertain yourself, which was usually getting high and watching whatever was on television. You know, it feels very like I'm watching skate videos for four and a half hours and I didn't notice time went that far, you know? Yeah, he feels in a way to me like the logical conclusion of Odd Future. Like they they don't have anything to do with each other necessarily, even though Tyler, the creator, does produce a song on this album. But where Odd Future and the artists in that collective were very bratty and very angry and very just sort of like, you know, spraying in every direction. Schoolboy is much more measured and direct and, you know, angry but contained. And you can you can kind of see that in his public persona too. Like you mentioned the fact that he doesn't have this sort of like mixtape approach to the world. He creates albums. He has four records. Yeah. He, doesn't put up, he doesn't just flood the block with music. He took almost two and a half years to put this album out after his last one, which was a number one record in the country. You'd think he'd try to capitalize on the Kendrick moment or something, but he really took his time. Yeah. He took a whole extra year to do this. He is a very self-contained artist. He's a, he's an adult insofar as somebody who makes a record like this can be an adult. And he almost works entirely... I, I feel like Schoolboy Q is best appreciated on Schoolboy Q records, whereas like for as much as I love the Vince Staples album, there's nothing I love more in this world than Vince Staple guest spots because I feel like Vince just comes in on Ride Out here. He's really great when he when he guests on Earl songs, but on Ride Out, like Vince, you're just like, oh my god, Vince is the best rapper alive for like 45 seconds in a row. Vince is really like a perfect contemporary yeah. for him, you know, in the way that Odd Future feels very young. Vince is those two guys match you know they have a similar point of view they have a similar tone it's all rap nihilism right yeah. which is not Deep a very cynicism. common thing yeah. yeah very very cynical yeah, they seem but it's it's like world. do you understand what i mean by was like you, to, to appreciate schoolboy you have to go to schoolboy to get it it's very true i can't even off the top of my head think of any relevant guest spots he's had aside from tde records yeah. um it's it's it doesn't really seem i'm sure that there are some and people people will tell me what they are but it's it's not a part of his pursuit he is self-contained in relationship to the YG record, and I think we should mention that Justin Charity's got a piece coming this week on The Ringer that's about these two albums, kind of looking at them together. I love the YG record, and we talked about it on The Watch a couple of weeks ago. And the more I think about it, though, and I'm not sure I really like was able to articulate this the last time I talked about it, and this is going to sound corny, but it does feel sometimes like when I'm listening to the YG record, like it's a Roy Lichtenstein version of West Coast rap, like it's it's almost like too self-aware how the beats are like just a little bit too mechanized. Does that yeah. make any sense? Like the way, the way it's almost just like West Coast rap. 100%. This is the best West Coast rap yeah. record ever made. It's this is the Daz homage. This is the DJ Clue yes. homage. This is the Cube song. This is my political song. It is very. It's paint by numbers, and I don't mean that as an insult. Yeah, and it's it is very joyful and excited. It's very. It really recalls Tupac. Maybe we can talk about your feelings about sure. Tupac. Um, and 
for that reason, I think it makes for a fun listen. I wouldn't describe Blank Face as a fun listen. No. This is kind of the, it's, it's a real alpha and omega proposition where if you want to go up at the barbecue, you listen to Still Brazy. If you want to go down on the Sunday night before you got to go to work, maybe light a match, you listen to this. Yeah, record. I was listening to Blank Face on the way to work today. It put me in an interesting mood. Good job on a Monday morning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's fun. I, I don't know really what Schoolboy Q's arc is, though. He's a really interesting character. He reminds me of like... um the kinds of artists that put out like 30 albums across 30 years and they just, they put a new one out and they put a new one. Yeah. Out. It's like Neil Young or something. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to be in pursuit of some like mass commercial enterprise, even though he has had a number one album in the country, even though he has had a top 10 single. A pretty devoted fan. Yeah. Fan base and, that will follow him on like the Jags he goes on. Yeah. Yeah. I, what do you think about the future of TDE given what Kendrick has become to the culture and, and the rest of the people in that world? Well, do you, it's it's interesting because like when you say TDE, I don't necessarily think of um, a specific collection of artists as much as like a very like artistically courageous and exploratory group of LA quote unquote rappers yeah. that are kind of messing around on the margins of that stuff. And so I don't necessarily think of it as like a crew in the way that you and I grew up thinking of that's Rockefeller, that's Dipset, these guys all, you know, kind of eat from the river of cam or eat from the river of jay but yeah. then go off and do their own thing but it's always basically related do you have a favorite i mean i really like j-rock do you have a favorite td person is it schoolboy it's probably schoolboy although you know i mentioned this last night the black hippie remix of that part which we mentioned earlier features just yet another in like a series of 100 consecutive kendrick verses that are really just emotionally intellectually you know stylistically and formally, yeah, yeah formally incredible just amazing like look at that look at the verse from from the black yeah people can that find part. that on genius.com there's like a piece where it's like look at the rhyme scheme of this verse it's it's staggering and it's also just there's a lot of meaning there's a there's a lot of interiority going on in that verse so kendrick is sort of it's impossible to defy him as yeah. the leading light there's of nothing that, that will make you confront your real relationship to your favorite rapper than having your favorite rapper rap next to Kendrick. And I say that as somebody who thinks nostalgia on the pusher record is probably one of like the five best rap songs of the last few years. And just Kendrick, Kendrick's just on a different planet. Kendrick is operating at a completely different frequency yeah. than even pusher who I think is in a lot of ways, like one of my favorite rappers ever. It's just incredible to watch him go to work on somebody else's song. I think the thing that I like about Kendrick is especially Taylor Swift. Oh, God, that hurts. The thing I like about Kendrick is not Taylor Swift, um, <laughs> is the specificity and the yeah. clarity that he raps with. Schoolboy Q is kind of the opposite proposition. It's really good vibe out. You don't actually don't have to worry too much about what the, the details of his pain. Um, you can really just enjoy the music around it. It's an interesting thing, too, where he has managed to not sacrifice the quality and the consistency of his work, but he still has... Metro Boomin on this album. He's got Swiss Beats on mm -hmm. this album. He has Alchemist on this album. He and has Miguel's people. on it, right? Miguel yeah. has a has a course on it. I was just reading about it this morning that the label needed to compel him yeah. to add Miguel to this record, even though I don't get that. Like in two, 2016, here's what I was thinking about that when I was, and there was another song on this record that I was thinking about this in relation to. I think it was Whatever You Want, and I was like, maybe he wanted to do this song, maybe he didn't. I hadn't read that interview yet, but. In 2016, it made sense in 2006 or 1996 when it was like, oh, this is a radio song. Yeah. Because there wasn't a Wikipedia where people were like, I'll just go find out everything I can about this person. And then I'll go on YouTube and do a search for his name and find out about his music. Mm -hmm. It was literally radio. It was your conduit to these people and to any artist. It could be like the Wallflowers or 
or Smashing Pumpkins. That's why those people made songs that were sort of the softest, most accessible version of what it is they thought they were doing. I don't know why you need to do that anymore. I guess it does appeal, quote unquote, to a large audience. But I always felt like, isn't that kind of a rope-a-dope where somebody's like, oh, I heard this song that you made with Jennifer Lopez. I thought it would be pretty cool to check you out. Oh, shit, you're Fat Joe. This is really, really brolic New York street rap. That's a really good question. I'm, I have two thoughts about this. On the one hand, I completely agree with you. I remember being at Coachella in 2014, and I was standing about a 1,000 yards away from a girl talk set happening on the main stage. <laughs> and he was, you know, beat matching, some, you know, the bangles to Jay-Z or something, some some terrible girl talk thing. And then Man of the Year by Schoolboy came on, and he flipped that against, like, a Radiohead song. And I was like, you know... Man of the Year is a real schoolboy banger. It's a, it's a poppy song, and it was a it was a quasi hit, but it was still a very hard record. Yeah, and I was like, okay, well, this is all schoolboy needs to do. But when I was reading about what he had to say about adding Miguel to this song on this album, it's largely because of the success of Studio from Oxymoron, which is probably the biggest hit off Oxymoron. Yeah. and he has he has there's an R and B hook on that song, and it's it's you can't get away from it, and so it does the radio thing that sort of like climbing the Spotify charts thing still does matter to some people. I just think Miguel is maybe not as pure pop as Jennifer Lopez. Yeah. I think you see less of that no, of, crass of commercial, like why is Mandy more on this song with designer <laughs> than you do, <laughs> than you do now where you see like you, candy and Panda are very close. You wouldn't have to change that many words. That's something that girl talk could maybe get into. I know. Yeah, that's true. Um, I want to ask you two questions to wrap this up before we get to John. One is, do you consider consider Untitled and Mastered a 2016 album? I am old, and so I think of it as an EP. Okay. Um, and and EPs are amazing. And there's two two songs on that record, number two and number seven, that probably are in my top 100 songs Kendrick. of the year. Yeah. yeah, Kendrick Lamar's Untitled and Mastered. Um, but it's, it's still basically like an odds and sods kind of thing. It's not really a, a true album. You can feel it being part of a recording time that was 18, 24 months ago. So no, but I don't think it really matters. Do you, And so where are you at now in July with the landscape? What's, what are the top three and what order from the rap, from rap? This can year? I share, like, can I share the take I've been sharpening for you? I, I, this is an exclusive, right? This is an exclusive. I feel like we yeah, should get yeah. like the hot 97 voice. I've really come around on views by the artist Drake. <sighs> I think views is really good. Tate, are you nodding? Tate, I know Tate agrees with me because Tate and I are from the same generation, even if they're different generations. We see the world. Build this ways, you with me nine. It's a it's a pretty solid intro to the album, but it's still soft and kind of whack. Hype, Western Road flows. This Western is a, Road flows is good. There's there's ten songs on that album that are really good, which so is if, more than there are more. That's more than our on blank face, which I love. And if it was a twelve song album, people would be like, "What a great record!" Yeah, which is such a that's a, probably a conversation you and I have had about rap records. Yeah, for ten oh, yeah. years, but it still means something. There's a lot of songs on there that I like to listen to. So I feel very good about views. Obviously coloring book and Pablo, um, own a lot of the mind share, I think for album of the year, for rap album of the year, for yeah. whatever category you want to create. But, um, you know, blank face kind of worming its way in there. I'm, I like the YG record. It's still brazy up there. Or is it? It's, it's, it's good. It's, yeah. it's good. And I won't return to it 18 months from now, the way that I do with Pablo every other week. Yeah. And I feel like I, I mean, it's only been a few days, but I feel like I have, I'm developing that relationship with Blank Face because I'm like I'm gonna have like a month or two where right out. I I've, I've already listened to Groovy Tony like 27 times today, so 
I mean, thank you for putting Jadakiss back in my life, Schoolboy Q. He's such a great man. Thanks, right, Chris. Let's uh, call John Car- Caramonica. All right, uh, I'm here with Sean Fennessy, Editor-in-Chief. Hello. Chief Keefe of The Ringer, and we are joined by our good buddy, the New York Times pop music critic, John Caramonica. What's up, John? N- not necessarily in that order, though, what, let's that be honest. That we're good buddies? I'm just saying, like, let's just, you know, tell the people, be truthful to the people. Pop music critic, true savant, yeah. Pokemon Go lord and master. And, That's true. And Yo, catch, catch me in the streets. Are you catch fucking playing streets. Pokemon Go? I'm, I'm, I'm be playing it right now. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, John. How does it feel that you spent like $100 on that E40 Warriors t-shirt and now it's garbage bandwagon jumping? First of all, when the, when the hip-hop museum opens in 2044, that is going to be vital, vital in the merch category. Just catching on, catching on the second floor next to my Rick Ross Teflon Don bobblehead. You know what I'm saying? Congratulations on all your artifacts. The other thing that they're going to... bust a... You're first of all, no, I'm going to be staring at a Busta Rhymes break your neck neck brace right now. I mean, come on. Why wouldn't I own that? So you're basically saying that um, if it weren't for your hoarding, we would have a hip-hop museum and rap That's would be exactly treated right. with the respect it deserved. What I'm saying is come see me. Come see, if you want to know the true history, come see me. There's only one reason this private culture tour, isn't Private tour is available. Yeah. Yeah, it's John. Okay, private. That's really creepy. Uh, John, you know what else should be in a museum is this, X, this uh, XXL magazine freestyle that designer did. For their freshman issue, I, was it for I freshman issue? See, and I know we agreed. I know we agreed in advance that that's what we were going to talk about, and we will talk about it. But I felt like it was a little sus that when you said, "John, what do you want to talk about?" and I said, "Chad from the Bachelorette Snapchat," you just got you the like, wrong cool. podcast. Call Juliet. Okay, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. You want to talk about quick enthusiasm? I mean, that's that's the most flame thing going. That's not on a Pokemon Go. You also uh, you right wrote now. about this designer freestyle, and I thought it was really fine. Fine. Oh my God, your relentless your relentless ability to steer the subject. Young Morley, I feel safer. like I'm on after the thrones. I feel like I'm on after the phones. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you about this because I can't think of a a precedent. I can't think of another time where the best thing someone has made is is something that's so disposable like this. Can you? Disposable is a rough word. Chris. Well, I don't mean Come disposable. On, but... I mean it's a forty-five second promo clip for a magazine cover. So I, I mean, I... well, sure, but but do keep. In, I mean, first of all, I feel like the precedent for this really is the BET Hip Hop Awards cipher. Yeah, the very very famous one. The one with Jewels, the one with Fab, like that, in terms of sort of like content that is created essentially for promotion, but that ends up being maybe like genre shifting, or at least in my mind, like that's sort of what I'm looking at it from the framework. Or, you know, or, you know, Cam, Cameron and Rap City. Yeah. I mean, uh, Sean and I were talking before we were recording, and I was like, is, is this like if Jay only ever did the S. Doc Carter Reebok mixtape? Right. But, but that's fine because, look, what is designer's signature problem, right? He his signature like problem is also it, – well, it's – no, no. His signature problem is also his signature accomplishment, which he is, is he is literally – all he's doing every day is trying to find five places that will let him play Panda and get a check for it. So 
that's that's sort of his his basic struggle right now. What do you mean five and, places? You mean like uh, like McDonald's? You know, like a club show. You know, a, car, a radio show. Like you know, he's milking it. He's running from spot to spot to spot. I don't know if you guys were real heavy on Snapchat this weekend, but if you looked at designer Snapchat, he was out in the Hamptons playing some party with a bunch of crazy white people for some online site with some retail site with Chanel Mon and Haley Baldwin and yada yada and white people were losing their minds to Panda. But then, you know, white people were not losing their... I can't even unpack that statement. I don't know if you guys were on Snapchat. No. Was he... (laughs) Was he playing it or was he like just like showing up with with a disc man and plugging in the aux and being like, have you white people heard Panda? What you... <laughs> you, you want to know if like Susan Tedeschi was back again? Like, what do you want to know, man? <laughs> he went out and he did the like he did the thing. He did the thing. Come on, you know what the thing I'm talking about? Is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't yeah. make me qualify the thing. But anyway, you know what the white people were not going crazy for? The Timmy Turner. Timmy, Timmy, Timmy Turner. He did a acapella, Timmy, Timmy Turner, and it literally looked like he was he was delivering something at a funeral. No one cared. The entire crowd just stopped dead. And I felt very bad for him because Timmy, Timmy, Timmy Turner, in my mind, is going to be the signature designer song when we all look back on designer 10 years. But is it is it going to be the version that we saw in this YouTube clip or is it going to be the version we, we heard in a clip of designer and Mike Dean getting John blazed out and listening to the musical version? Have you seen that yet, Sean? I, I think I think here's the thing. I think in the way that like real Drake heads are like the pop can version is the real version, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Not the Beanie Man version. I think in that same way, this XXL freestyle is the real version, and whatever ends up on whatever album is not going to be the real version. And that's for a couple reasons. One, it shows Designer, I mean, assuming Designer wrote it, which I'm assuming he did, it shows Designer has a depth and a range that he did not display on Panda. It shows that he has like a narrative approach that was not there necessarily on Panda. Also, and I wrote about, I wrote about this when I when I wrote about the freestyle, there's a difference in his delivery yeah, between definitely. the XXL freestyle and the, whatever he's doing with Mike Dean. In the XXL freestyle, he takes on the burden of the narrative, but he also takes on the burden of the sort of melodies and the counter melodies. He all, um, all that melancholy that is sort of taken on by whatever beat Mike Dean gave him, uh, designer uh, appropriated and took into account on that freestyle. And as a result, it's, it's sort of beautiful and haunting and, and almost profound. And then when he did it over the Mike Dean beat, he kind of let go of the beat. He, let, he adhered more tightly to the beat structure and therefore let go of some of those sort of uh, those blue notes and those grace notes in between beats that really gave the XXL freestyle a lot of gravitas. And then it just sort of sounded like he was rapping, which, whatever. Yeah, it's funny, John, what you identified is exactly what we talked about in our office when that freestyle first came out, we were like, wow, this is profound. The melody, the depth, the incantation, there's something funereal and terrifying about this. And then we immediately jumped to, oh my God, designer is way deeper and better than we ever could have imagined. And then I felt like the air kind of came out of the balloon when we heard that Mike Dean version. There is this weird disconnect between designer now getting the chance to work with the most elite creative people in hip hop and somehow it being worse for him? Like, is it possible if he were a man alone recording these weird acapella songs, would he be somehow more interesting to us? I don't think so, because I guess I'm not convinced that 
this weird acapella song even would have come to the surface had we not kind of gone through like the Kanye boot camp to this point. Right. You know like, he mean? wouldn't be a freshman who got a freestyle in the first place had he not had Kanye not taken his work and made it into and he also might not have taken the risk of doing something like that even if he wasn't a freshman even if he was just still a kid posting to soundcloud what kid posting to soundcloud is basically doing like spoken word tone poetry you know like no one's really doing that so what are the odds that him as a kid who was 17 or 18 buying beats off of uh off of the internet from random producers he's never met what are the odds that he's gonna be like you know what's really gonna be popping is if i do this and i sort of like take my voice and and turn it into a gospel sermon it just seems unlikely you know there's an interesting designers interviews have have typically been pretty bad but he said something in in one of the early ones that i read um that at the time seemed you know, like just a thing that a guy says, which is, you know, I met with Kanye and everything on good music. Like everybody here is an artist. Like we're not rappers, we're artists. And like maybe that's meaningless to me and you and like a bunch of people who sort of follow the genre for years and years and years because it's the type of thing a lot of people say. But if you're a kid coming from where he comes from who really hasn't been exposed to folks like Kanye and creative processes like his, maybe he really did take it to heart. Maybe he really did open his mind, and maybe he really did um, learn something from being around those guys. Um, that said, if you listen to the mixtape, it's also like, eh, maybe not. <laughs> that, was, that was my follow-up was, have you heard New English? Because I, I don't think that's the case. Um, yeah. How, yeah. How, how much of that do you think is just leftover old stuff that he's been working on for a while, and how much of it is, I came out of the Mike Dean Kanye lab, and this is what I got? I, I, think, got. That's a fair, I think that's a fair question. I, I, I want to say maybe, I feel like it's mostly new. To be honest, I, I I don't get the sense that I mean, look, I, I I'm not gonna say I got Talmudic with New English, you know, like I didn't exactly like listen to it twelve times and try to parse out all the fine points, but it felt like stuff. It felt like a guy who was burning off a lot of energy, mm-hmm. you know, like that's and yeah. and that's fine, but it would, didn't feel focused, but it felt it felt like they were like we got to get twelve songs, like we just got to keep going, and so. Because of that, my, my sense is it's mostly new. I felt like um, Timmy Tur- the Timmy Turner freestyle pushed him firmly beyond the future comparison into a new conversation. And then mm-hmm. when I heard the mixtape and I heard Shooters and I heard Make It Out, I was like, these are just bad future songs. Yeah. And it's amazing how he just gave that up immediately. I guess the question is not so much then how much of New English was before or after. Maybe the question is more like, where did the Timmy Turner for like who's actually behind the Timmy Turner freestyle? Because maybe there's some in hand there that we're not aware of. Right. Maybe like, that's actually the outlier. Like, you know, Timmy Turner freestyle is if I had to do my top ten of two thousand sixteen, like that's that's top five maybe yeah. right now. And like, it's also but it's I'm a question sure about whether or not like that could be that's that just feels like one of those we're gonna find out in three years that like he had the beat but like didn't it didn't work like when he was freestyling or something like that? Like I know their site, like their acapellas. Like there'll be some like rather sus backstory. You mean? Yeah, something. Yeah, you know, Big Sean wrote that's it. That's too bad. I hope that that's <laughs> not the truth. No, honestly, I hope that's not the truth. Like I, when I heard that, I was just like, oh, I want this kid to win. And if you like follow him and you like see him, he's so just full of enthusiasm. Yeah. He, his, his, like I, I mean, that's why team. I like the Mike Dean clip. Is like he's just so in the moment right there. I mean, Joie de Vivre doesn't even begin to describe what this kid's life is Maybe like. Maybe you should call his album Joie de Vivre. 
and maybe then you maybe then you'd appreciate them. Yes, that's right. Lord knows everybody should just name albums in ways that make me happy. John, thanks for calling in from the Hip Hop Museum. Uh, I, I, I wish you and the Golden State Warriors the best of luck next season. I'm just going to smooch you before I come gather your edges, dog. <laughs> Bye, John. <laughs> Bye. And now we are joined by, or I am joined by, Allison Herman from The Ringer. What's up, Allison? Not too much. <laughs> uh, and this is your first time on The Watch. We're really excited to have you. I'm, I'm speaking so... for Andy here. Andy's just like somewhere with Robbie Malik, probably, so he doesn't care. But still. I appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> Allison, I wanted to have you on because I really loved the thing you wrote about the night of, and you and I are both super into this show. Um, mm-hmm. We have to be careful because, you know, I know that everything that happens in this show is like such pure plot that like it goes into the the understanding of the case that the season is taking on. But the idea that you kind of put forward in your piece that was up last week um, was this idea that it's like a return to golden age television, right? That it's um, that it kind of has the essence of the best shows that we used to like that, that we sort of not grew up watching, but like kind of cemented the world that we kind of live in now with television. Can you talk a little bit about your piece? Yeah, definitely. So I think um, we're sort of in this period of skepticism towards a lot of the tropes that a lot of the big Golden Age shows kind of introduced to television. So, Do you think that there's like a particular thing behind that skepticism? I think there's sort of a chain of things. Like you have very high profile codifications of that trope that didn't necessarily succeed. So vinyl would be the most obvious example. Yeah, right. Um, looking towards HBO more generally, people have sort of noted that since Game of Thrones launched, they haven't really had that big tentpole drama yeah, in yeah. the tradition of The Wire the Sopranos. And then there's kind of this interesting trickle-down effect that if you look at a show like AMC's Halt and Catch Fire, which was sort of criticized for being kind of a rote replication yeah. of that trope Difficult in the first man, season. company stuff, just like Mad Men with computers, basically. Was exactly. The idea, was the criticism, yeah. Exactly. And in its second season, it strayed pretty far away from that and also demonstrated a lot of awareness of the flaws of the Difficult Man character in the show. Right. And people really responded to that, critically at least. And so I think The Night Of is a really interesting entry into that conversation because it has a lot of the things that we so loved about the most obvious example would be The Wire because sure. Richard Price worked on that show. But it has this sort of ambiguous morality, genre focus and crime, a lot of things that, you know, we haven't necessarily seen. We remember from Breaking it. Bad. We remember from Sopranos. Yes. We remember from, from, yeah, from The Wire. Exactly. Um, I was curious as to whether or not, Andy and I talked about this a little bit last week, whether or not, I mean, obviously they shot this pilot 2012 with Gandolfini and there's actually a pretty mm-hmm. interesting Q&A with Riz Ahmed and um in Vulture where he's just like yeah like we were it was Gandolfini and then it was obviously not and then it was going to be De Niro for a second and I was like about to get on a plane to go shoot this with De Niro and then that got canceled and then it was like all of a sudden it's like Turo get on a plane um but I was wondering despite the fact that it's been such a long gestating project project whether or not you feel like it also comes into a moment where because of making a murderer, because of serial, because of our fascination with the minutia of the criminal justice system and with unfairly accused or possibly unfairly accused criminals in 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 certain cases, that it's it's kind of catching a zeitgeist moment, which is also something that those HBO shows used to be that the Golden Age TV seemed to grab. Definitely, I mean, um, yeah, it's just that 
I think we're sort of in a cultural moment where we are fixating on the flaws of the criminal justice system. For and obvious that's reasons, yeah. Very apparent in the news, but it's kind of trickled down into not just the fact that serial making murder exists, but that they had such a chokehold on the popular imagination mm-hmm. for a few weeks. And I think it's sort of interesting that it does combine a lot of things that, you know, the wire was nothing if not skeptical of our criminal justice system with things that have trickled into the zeitgeist. Also the fact that, you know, he talks about, um, obviously, uh, Riz Ahmed's character is Pakistani-American, and they talk about the effects of post-9-11 prejudice on his community. They hint at it in the premiere episode. I don't think it's going to be a shocker that it comes into play a little later. But the fact that these are things that have both been in the conversation literally since 2001 and things that are just a little bit more current now than they have been in the past few years is definitely, it's a fortuitous collision for the show. I was watching, uh, partially on your recommendation, I was watching a bunch of Girlfriend Experience episodes this week end, and that was fun. Um, <laughs> and I I couldn't help but feel like watching that, having seen two seasons of The Nick, and looking at Robert Ellsworth's work with Steve Zalian, uh, Robert Ellsworth, the cinematographer, who's worked a bunch with Paul Thomas Anderson um, and shot the first few episodes of The Night Of, was just like how far we've come from golden age television in terms of like the visual vocabulary yeah. of these shows. It do you think the night of does anything visually that is what makes it just so distinctive? I mean, obviously there's composition questions, but the way that it's it's actually kind of a boring show in terms of just like oh and then he goes to a procedural hearing and then he goes to this and then his parents try to bring him some food or something like that like that's not like oh my god we found out don draper is this person yeah but they do such a great job of particularly in the premiere just like suffusing it with dread like the idea of a college student going to a party isn't inherently a terrifying prospect but the show teaches you very early on i thought another visual thing that was really interesting was it's it uses surveillance footage and so you are literally seeing people you're seeing Riz Ahmed's character as he is seen, and you see how incriminating it looks when you get the um, the Midtown Tunnel surveillance footage or you get the interrogation yeah, footage. Yeah. And it's very good at sort of teaching you to see this through the eyes of both someone another, who And that's another post-9-11 thing. It's oh, like this absolutely. idea that everything we do is basically on tape, whether it's because we're filming each other or because we're being filmed. Yeah, and the fact that it is so desaturated. It's it's literally shot in shades of gray, which, you know, yeah. goes really well with the thematics. But it's just this New York that it impresses upon you, not just, like, the fact that being in New York at night can be a sort of scary thing, but also just the drudgery of when he shows up at the precinct. Yeah. You see that this is full of paper pushers and people who aren't exactly, you know, at the top of their game. They're just kind of there at four in the morning filling out paperwork, and they just want to clock out. Yeah. And it's this, you know, grinding system that this dude is suddenly interjected in and that's it that's the thing that the wire captured really well about police work was this idea that everybody works for somebody that everybody you're all everybody's part of the same bureaucracy and that everybody Mm -hmm. has these margins that nobody you know that seems sort of arbitrary the thing that's been really great so far in reading some of the responses is just i'm just richard price is one of my favorite writers and you know that andy and i've talked a lot about the idea of this tension that's developing or maybe even just it's good that television is somewhat becoming more of a director's medium the more these sort of marquee filmmakers get involved in like i'm going to shoot a six episode thing but it's incredible to watch and people will see this unfold like a really great richard price crime novel and it does has all the hallmarks of it whether it's that like almost on a chemical level understanding of new york city and oh, yeah. its frustrations and its possibilities mm-hmm. and that's so so much like lush life where it's like 
you can have the most amazing night of your life that ends with the most tragic thing that ever happened, you know, and just yeah. also just that feeling of like the lights and the sounds and the people and everybody you see on subways having a different interface with what you're doing. I, you just transplanted from New York. I mean, is it making yeah. you nostalgic at all? Yeah. I mean, I really, one thing I really loved about Lush Life was that it kind of captured this incredibly unlikely collision of these two usually separate classes of New Yorkers. Yeah. And this is very similar. It's, you know, she lives in an unbelievable Upper West Side brownstone, which the New Yorker in me is trained to be like, how does she live there? Yeah, which, right. Um, but then you also get the Pakistani cab driver's son. You get the beat cops and you just get this like... Uh, singular event that just happens to toss together a bunch of people who both interact every day in the form of the subway car and uh, otherwise never have substantive interactions. Yeah, also, and it's, it's just like the idea that something is is at once two blocks away and three worlds away. Like oh, the, definitely. The way the depiction of Queens, the depiction of how d- dilapidated the, the police stations are and mm-hmm. just how analog it all is with writing everything out in pen. I mean, it's taking, taking place in 2014. It's still... I mean, that's they could be on on some sort oh, of software yeah. by then. Um, okay, Night of is great. I wanted to just get quickly from you, like, what else are you watching right now? Um, well, I just wrote a thing that went up on the website today. Uh, over July Fourth weekend, I went on an incredibly impulsive Hulu binge of these two oh, shows, okay. cu- uh, Cucumber and Banana. They're British imports. It's one of those things that's both um, not timely at all because it originally aired a year ago, but because it's not that many people actually watched it when it first aired. It's just hanging out in these streaming services, just waiting for people to kind of stumble on. Yeah. So people are always asking me what's on Hulu or Netflix that I can just kind of tune into. And I highly, highly, highly recommend these two for sure. Um, what else? Uh, Stranger Things is coming out on Netflix this Friday. Yeah. 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 I was, you know, I because I was talking about, we, this is like Brian Curtis wrote something for us in the newsletter when we were first starting out about um i think it might have been about midnight special yeah and it was about like the sort of amplification amplification of everything and how we just it seems like movie history starts with et you know yeah. and that's our collective imagination stretched back to whatever spielberg film was the sort of formative experience for us but it does seem also like over the last with midnight special with this and a couple of other films like the guest and some other stuff that carpenter john carpenter has become like as big of an influence i haven't gotten a chance to see any of stranger things were, were you a fan of it have you checked out the, the yeah. first episode yeah i've seen the first um two or three episodes and if you are a fan of 80s style either spielberg blockbusters or carpenter films you will absolutely love it it is an incredibly studied and well executed yeah. homage to those things and the filmmaking is great since we were talking about uh, television is uh, increasingly a director. But you're medium. a little bit younger, so when you're watching that, are you like, "This is cool," like this is good Spielberg karaoke, or are you? Do you see it and you're like, "This is great," like I really like like it for what it is, or do you care about all the boxes it checks with, like whether it's lens flare or John Williams style <laughs> swelling music or kids in their wonder at space or whatever, like that. They, well, what's your what's your sort of relationship to that stuff? I mean, I definitely grew up watching Spielberg stuff on VHS. It didn't just disappear from the consciousness. I know. Yes, I'm but sure. um, <laughs> yeah, I think also this is a show that very much wants you to understand that it is a homage, yeah. homage, and it's working in this tradition, and it kind of goes out of its way. I think like there, you see '80s kids playing Dungeons and Dragons, and it's all these things that clearly are not. I feel like there are certain '80s shows like Halt and Catch Fire that don't necessarily. They're not about the nostalgia element as much. They're like Halt and Catch Fire is very forward looking. Sure. It's about the dawn of the tech revolution. This is very much focusing on the 80s as something that is not like the way 
uh, suburban childhood is today. Yeah. Like you see them discovering ham radio and being so wowed by the idea of them being able to talk to each other. And so I think the nostalgia is kind of infectious. Like you really pick up the, the brothers who co-created the series, you know, are working in this tradition and really enjoy it. And it's obviously wonderful to see Winona Ryder. Well, I was going to ask, how, what's the state of the Winona sons? Strong. Okay. <laughs> She's so incredible in Show Me a Hero. I just oh, was like, yeah. I'm hoping that she keeps the keeps the streak alive. Yeah, I think um, her character, you know, she plays a woman whose son goes missing. So yeah. I think in the early episodes, it is justifiably very focused on her, like, panicked response so to she's that. kind of like the Melinda Dillon Close Encounters character. Exactly. Yeah. So I get the sense that she's going to have, you know, more to do and that character is going to deepen as the, as the series goes on. But definitely, you know, it's a cast mostly of child actors and she's definitely the biggest name on there and I think she totally carries it and it'll be great if she's the draw that gets people to watch it okay awesome we'll have to check that out Allison Herman thank you so much for joining us you can read Allison's stuff on The Ringer we'll have her on again sometime soon Uh, thanks for listening guys